You're listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. On the show today, we had Sally White, Deputy Editor at Crikey, join us, and she gave us the latest in federal politics. Then we had Peter Mayers, Contributing Editor to Inside Story, join us in the studio to talk about his essay, Surfing with Singer, which talked about effective altruism and charitable giving. Then we had filmmaker Jolyon Hoff and former refugee and photographer Muzaffar Ali, and they both joined me to talk about The Staging Post, which is a documentary they've just released. And then we had a chat with freelance writer Sophie Cunningham on her Nature Prize award-winning essay, Biala Stories, which is published by the Griffith Review and talks about the beauty of the river red gum. Yes, you are listening to 3 R on... 102.7 FM and this is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins and uh, we do have a very special guest, uh, Sally White, Deputy Editor of Crikey and she joins us via the phone to chat about federal politics. Hi Sally. Hi Amy, thanks for having me. No, it's wonderful to have you. Um, we're very much uh, looking forward to this chat because uh, as you know the, the winter recess is almost here uh, in terms of the parliamentarians heading yes, back to yes, their electorates. Yes, so it's the last week. So it's a bit like exam period in that they haven't done anything for ages. And, well, (laughs) they've done a few things. They've got a few things done. But now they're on deadline and they have to get some stuff passed, especially because quite a few of the laws that they want to enact, like around taxes and things, they want them to start on July 1, which is the start of the next financial year. So it's all rush, rush, rush at the moment. And presumably the Senate on uh, Thursday will be sitting quite late, as as is usual. It, It can sometimes go into the morning hours. Yes, I would expect that it will be a late one, although there's been a few signals. So one of the big things that they're going to be trying to get through this week is the Gronsky 2.0 reforms. And the uh, there was a signal, sort of just one line in the Australian this morning, that they may not even get it through this week. So they may even be giving up on some of the things that they really want to get done. Absolutely. Now, Gonski 2.0 probably is one of the biggest issues this week in terms of the negotiations and the back and forth that's currently occurring. Um, and uh, we have seen in the age today on the on the front page um, that uh, there's a lot of toing and froing, particularly between the Greens and the Coalition and uh, even within the Greens party room there's great uh, discontent and uh, and disagreement as to what kind of compromise is acceptable particularly given that the uh, Education Union are lobbying very hard for this. What also throws a spanner into the works is that uh, retiring Western Australian Liberal Senator Chris Back um, who is a, a supporter of the Catholic education system um, is actually thinking about crossing the floor. I mean, what do you think uh, could be the likely scenarios in terms of getting this, uh, this legislation through and what might the compromises be? I think it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what they, what they end up doing. The government, in, in previous sort of negotiations about the school sector, so the last time, the last time we went through Gonski negotiations, uh, Julie Gillard made the, um, the pledge that no, no, no school would be worse off. And, and that's how we've ended up with a system that, um, that, 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 you know, we have government ministers saying that some schools are overfunded and but this this time Simon Birmingham's taken a very different um, I guess tactic in that 
they haven't sort of made any any concessions at all so far to the Catholic sector, and and he's he's balancing these sort of two different forces here, which is. The issues within his own party, which is that some of them... Um, so Chris Back was the first one to come out and say it. Now Kevin Andrews has said, I want to see the modelling. Erica Betts has also said that he's very concerned about uh, about what this means for, for Catholic schools. And, uh, and so he's got to balance those factors within his own party, but then also the demand, like the demands of the Greens, but the Greens are also struggling to work out what their... Um, position will be because they are worried about the backlash from the Australian Education Union. So I, I don't know, it's hard to see what they will do, but so far, so far they haven't made it look like they're going to make concessions to the Catholic school sector, but the way that this parliament has been has been working, we, we could come out with something completely different on Thursday night. Exactly. Well, it, it would undermine their line that everyone is treated fairly and equally, given that this is meant to be an equitable system. Whether that will be the case in reality is yet to be seen. Um, but there is this jostling, and I think uh, the Greens are looking to also change the time period um, that these reforms are implemented. Uh, so the government has slated it to be rolled out across 10 years, or it's a 10-year plan. Uh, but the Greens want this funding to actually be delivered within a six-year time frame, which means that there'd actually be an increase in funding of between $18.6 billion and $24 billion across that period. I mean, do you think that is a, a reasonable compromise? And, uh, and some people are saying that perhaps um, if you compromise there, at least then you're starting from a point where you can continue to negotiate into the future. I think it's a possibility. It's also a um, it's also a point that um, Nick Xenophon has picked up on is the is the timeline and wanting it to be a little bit quicker. One of the things about promising things over ten years is that so much can change in that time, and we we're debating. The original um, Gonski legislation was also meant to be um, long-term legislation but was then changed, um, the, the funding was changed under Tony Abbott and we're talking about it again now. So I think part of the reason about wanting things to um, to be done quicker is not only for for the more funding for, in its own right but for the certainty that comes from that as well. So I think that one's a possibility. Well, absolutely, because as we've seen, um, Gillard's plan was a 10-year plan and it, uh, it's only had four years of implementation and now we're renegotiating and seeing a, a second iteration. Um, let's move to news poll. Uh, not that we're going to dwell too much, but there was an interesting change. So if we look at the two-party preferred, it's still in Labor's favour of 53 to 47 um, to the coalition, but something happened with one nation's primary vote. Yeah, so the one nation, um, the one nation vote um, moved a little bit, and it's um, it's being seen as a thing that basically they they gained ground from nine to eleven percent, which is considering that there's been an incredible amount of headlines um, about what's been going on within One Nation, with internal issues with uh, James Ashby and, and the plane, that we don't really know who bought, who bought the plane and all this sort of back and forth. It's, I think it, what it shows is that those sort of... Um, 
that some of the voters that uh, are attracted to One Nation feel that the party has been, um, I guess, unfairly targeted by the media, um, which, you know, isn't really, like, one homogenous body anyway, uh, but that even those sort of scandals, they just, it's like water off a duck's back for, um, for Pauline Hanson and One Nation. So it's interesting to see that... Uh, I guess in a way she can do no wrong for some of her voters. Yeah, except in the uh, Western Australian election where she didn't do as well as she'd hoped. Yeah, yes. Um, that one, that, that instability and all those sort of headlines there, they do have an issue. So it's, um, it's becoming harder and harder to predict um, how voters will react to, to parties like that. Mm. And interesting that the Greens are largely stable, but they did lose at one percentage point down to 9% um, recently. And, and also, I mean, difficult for them when they're in this negotiating period. They, they haven't really grown across the last four to five years, have they? Not a lot. And this this could be like an hour-long uh, conversation <laughs> with, with quite a few different people. And it is, um, it is part of the... the I guess the struggle that um, the Greens are um, having now is that they there are people within the Greens party that uh, think that, okay, well, why not negotiate with the Liberals? We could get a pretty decent, um, decent uh, change to school funding, um, work with them, and then there are some, some in the party that think we should never... Um, you know, negotiate with the Liberals on anything. And those sort of... Uh, and those conflicting views uh, are part of part of the, the party, and then also I think that our, that uh, discussion also plays into which direction would you go in to increase the votes. And there's I think valid arguments on both sides. Mm. Yeah, they're really in a bind there, um, and uh, it's almost sometimes the case that uh, negotiating with the coalition is somewhat less controversial than negotiating with Labor when it comes to their rivalry in terms of uh, seeking to take each other's votes. Um, But uh, let's move to asylum seekers, given it is World Refugee Day. And in the last week, we've seen um, a settlement of a class action uh, which was brought on by a, a large law firm on behalf of many asylum seekers who have been and some who continue to be at Manus Island. Island, uh, the detention centre there, and that's a $70 million uh, settlement plus $20 million in legal costs, which the Commonwealth Government is uh, slated to be uh, to be giving to these um, asylum seekers who have suffered uh, from diff- different kind of, of injuries, such as uh, mental ill health and physical uh, injuries whilst they've been in detention. I mean, how significant is this development? Because Peter Dutton, the immigration minister, has been out there basically suggesting this is just one more uh, labour mess that he's mopping up. Yeah, it is significant in that it's uh, I mean, it's a huge amount of money. Once it is divided up um, between um, the different refugees, um, they'd be looking at sort of, on average, I think tens of thousands of dollars each. Um, so that's still, um, I guess, a significant amount of money, but uh, maybe um, for, for those that are still incarcerated, it, it doesn't make them any more free. Uh, it's One thing that is significant is that the government chose 
chose to settle, despite uh, some people in um, in the um, government, um, like Tony Abbott, using this as a chance to to have a go at the judiciary, even though it was a decision made by um, by the government itself. The the thing about settling is that now we don't hear. Uh, all the evidence that was prepared um, to go to court, we we don't hear that, and so it means, in a way, the government gets away with with not having more and more of this. What's going on there? This cruelty. Um, they don't get it out. It doesn't. It doesn't come out. It, it's again, um, you know, kept away from the public. So it's significant in that it is, I guess, the government in a way conceding that that what they're doing there is wrong but at the same time they're not allowing um for these the voices of the the refugees there to, to be heard mm. yeah it certainly undermines um the transparency that we like to see more often from our um our government about immigration and uh, asylum seekers i mean let's look at uh the Turnbull midwinter ball speech because um, he he's copped a bit of flack for this. We haven't seen any Trump tweets as yet directed to uh, Prime Minister Turnbull. But, I mean, if you listen to the audio, he is actually imitating Donald Trump um, and it's a bit disturbing to see in a foreign policy sense that any, uh, you know, leader of a, a country would... Um, impersonate another leader at a, at a function with what five to six hundred journalists in the room yeah so it's this event is generally off the record and it's it's the speeches are often quite candid and I haven't attended the event before but um, from what I've heard some years I've been like oh if only if only that speech could be made public it would make the politicians look in a better light and the thing about the uh, Turnbull that impression of Donald Trump that he did he was actually talking about polls and now he's got all these better polls and he was actually making fun of himself by using this, you know, Donald Trump cadence and and this idea of I've got a guy in Russia um, to do it. So it really, if it was anyone else other than Donald Trump, like if he'd done it to, say, Barack Obama, who had a much better personal relationship with or, or some other leaders that are slightly more predictable and we know a little bit more about their sense of humour, it would be not that much of a worry. But with Trump and the way that he uh, seems to fly off the handle a little bit it it was a bit of a concern and I think in a way with those speeches even though they are supposedly off the record you can't say anything in that room without being prepared to, to face what might happen if it's if it becomes public mm. so I don't think it's turned out as badly as it could but there was that time on Thursday night where uh, a lot of the Australian sort of you know Twitter sphere was just sitting and waiting uh, to see what what Donald Trump would say. Yes, and still waiting. Um, (laughs) And we've also seen a bit of a a, a tougher stance from Turnbull on China in a foreign policy sense. And we've obviously seen developments from Four Corners around political donations. Um, But he's actually, I think even at that ball, he termed um, China and the Chinese government a frenemy. 
um, which is really interesting to see a bit of ambivalence and uh, and some negativity creeping in there, given that um, it's largely been positive in terms of Australia's economic relationship with China. Obviously, we have a much closer security relationship with uh, America and there's disputes over the South China Sea. But, I mean, what do you um, think about this hardening stance on China and and um, given that that's also from a coalition government... Yeah, it'll be interesting to know how uh, frenemy uh, translates into to Chinese and see if it um, quite has the the right effect. I think it's a really um, it's a really difficult area for for the government, and they seem to be mostly not they're really towing a line and not saying saying too much. Um, but there was the speech um, last year where um, where Malcolm Turnbull really, I guess. Calling out China is not quite the right word, but really like named China and, and said, um, and said you can do you can do more and and to and to sort of take a leadership role and to respect the sovereignty of other nations. So, in that sort of diplomatic speak where they keep the keep their cards very close to the chest, that was quite kind of a big thing to say. But it's definitely not being. I guess backed up at the moment by anything more than than those sorts of of words. Mm, so there's not still, been a substantial policy change. Yeah, it's still softly, softly. What will be interesting to see is that there's um, currently a lot of work being done on the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade's uh, white paper, and it'll be interesting to see what that white paper says about Australia's relationship with China. Indeed, definitely. Um, and just finally, just to cap off the discussion, it's uh, impossible to talk about the last week in politics without mentioning the Finkel Review, uh, which has seen a lot of back and forth between uh, coalition party room members um, and even the broader community questioning even the modelling behind uh, some of the Finkel review and the uh, clean energy target that has been proposed. Where are we at at the moment in terms of the response um, by parliamentarians to the Finkel review? And do you think there's likely to be movement on this anytime soon? Uh, Finkel is becoming one of those names like Gonski in that we're talking about a um, human. Talking about it all, talking about an actual human, but their name becomes meaning something else completely. Uh, this is and an also another one of the issues where um, the government not only has to work out, um, you know, dealing with the crossbench, but dealing with its own its own members. And we had uh, Barnaby Joyce on on TV on Sunday saying that um, the party doesn't have a uh, religious. Um, obsession with coal, although I think that some of the members of the um, coalition do. Uh, so when this was talked about last Tuesday night, um, there were quite a few members of the Liberal Party that said they had issues with the report, even though they hadn't read it. Uh, but it's I don't think we'll see um, movement on this, definitely not this week. Um, it's definitely not the focus, but there is calls from uh, small business today um, in the paper today saying get a move on. Inaction is inaction is what's um, you know, killing us here that we just don't know what to expect. And there's uh, quite a few headlines that power prices will be going up again at the start of the financial year. So I reckon once, um, once the general public starts seeing their power bills going up, I think that will change the urgency a little bit in that um, that the MPs will start feeling a lot of pressure, but whether or not that means that we 
I think that means we'll end up passing um, some of the um, recommendations of the Finkel report, especially the idea of this clean energy target so that it's, it doesn't just say renewable, so it can include coal. I think Which is will, somehow um, clean. <laughs> That's another debate for clean. another day. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> um, and there's even some, some talk about um, building a new coal-fired power plant and the idea being that if it's sort of new technology, not like Hazelwood, which was, you know, 50 years old, that that technology would then be make less emissions. But we're still, you know, burning coal that can only be burnt once. So it'll be, it will take a while, I think, before we get an answer on this one. And I think it'll be another one where we get a mishmash of some of the recommendations. But there'll be some things that, uh, that will have people like Tony Abbott piping up ever so helpfully all the time. Uh, to to make sure that it, it doesn't go through um, just uh, just as was recommended. Yes, well, he has been very helpful recently, hasn't he? Uh, one of the most vocal of the Liberal Party members at the moment, and I'm sure Malcolm Turnbull is enjoying that immensely. Yes, yes, I'm sure that, uh, you know, he doesn't lie awake thinking about this every night. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Sally, it's been an absolute delight to have a chat with you today about federal politics and uh, thanks for giving us the, the update as to uh, what's happening and what might happen uh, this week. It's very exciting. No problem, Amy. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. That was Sally White, who's Deputy Editor of Crikey. And another exciting thing is that I get to talk to Peter Mayers, who uh, is contributing editor to Inside Story and also now a, a part-time philosopher. Um, and he's written this wonderful essay, uh, which is called Surfing with Singer, uh, which does reveal that he not only surfs, but so does Peter Singer, which is quite interesting. Hi, Peter, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Amy. I think um, part-time philosopher might be a bit of an exaggeration. Um, not a stretch? I, well, I, I'm probably as good at philosophy as I am at surfing. So um, <laughs> that's not very good. Yet to be <laughs> a beginner seen. in both respects. <laughs> well, it's hard to tell that because um, this essay is really interesting. It does bring up philosophical questions and uh, and draws in some utilitarianism and uh, John Stuart Mill into the debate, as well as uh, Peter Singer, who is a well-known Australian philosopher, often based in America, but uh, he certainly has a role at the University of Melbourne too. Um, and you've written this piece in response to uh, a talk that he gave at the Wheeler Centre in April 2015. And there was this... Um, this question from the audience from a woman named Rachel that really got you thinking about this. And, uh, and I did actually watch that, uh, the whole video and to see the presentation and, um, and was also intrigued and probably would have had the same questions that you started asking. And I'm really glad you then actually uh, explored them in this piece. So let's go to what, uh, Peter Singer was initially discussing, um, which was this concept of effective altruism, which he says is a, a fairly recent development in this kind of, in the way that it's formulated. Obviously, yeah. altruism isn't a new thing, um, but effective altruism is a bit different and it's somewhat mathematical. Could you share with us what effective altruism is? Yeah, I guess, um, so this is Singer's latest book, or it may not be his most recent book now, but the book um, is called The Most Good You Can Do, and it's about effective altruism. And there's a kind of movement of effective altruists now, many of whom are, in fact, inspired by Singer himself. Many often they're his former students. And the idea behind effective altruism is that you look at 
yeah, the most good you can do. Where can I do the most good with my volunteering, my donations, whatever it may be? And so he, he uses the example of a former student of his called Matt uh, Waga. I think it is might, might be Matt Wage. I'm not sure how you, how you say the name. But he's a guy who, who you know, studied under Singer and came to see him and said, you know, I'm, I'm trying to work out what to do with my life after being a brilliant um, philosophy student. And uh, he thought he'd go and work for Oxfam. Uh, and um, Singer, uh, well, it, the, the upshot of the conversation was that this guy went off instead to work on Wall Street uh, in, I'm not sure what he does, but a very, very highly paid job uh, that he's very good at uh, and earns basically, you know, many times what he would have earned at Oxfam and is able then to donate that money to Oxfam to employ several other people who can do just as good a job or maybe nearly as good a job as he might have done at Oxfam. So the idea here is that his time was better spent on Wall Street making lots of money, living, however, a fairly simple life on a fairly simple wage and using his income for better purposes. So that's one example of effective altruism. And Singer, um, there's, a, there's a Q&A episode people could look up too from that same period in, in mid-2015. And Singer says, you know, like if we go and buy a washing machine or a fridge, we look up, you know, how efficient is it? How long is it likely to last? How good a job does it do? And he says, why don't we do the same things when we make donations? Uh, And so he set up a website, for example, where you can see what's the kind of uh, bang for your buck that you get when you when you donate money, and and he will put his money into things like bed nets for malaria prevention, um, uh, to Oxfam Community Abroad. So he'll target certain charities rather than others because he'll feel that for this amount of money spent here, I can do, you know, a larger amount of good than than if I donate money somewhere else. Yeah, and it even gets into mathematical equations such as uh, it brings in probability. So the likelihood of this many lives being saved versus the certainty of this one life being saved and then doing those maths and going with the ones where uh, he says, for example, the probability of saving 10 people, um, you know, is more likely than the certainty of the one. So he went with the 10. I mean, this seems um, a, a bit reductive and uh, I guess it is a new way of looking at giving, isn't it? Well, it, I mean, it, it really comes back to the um, singer's underlying political uh, um, uh, philosophy, which is utilitarianism. And utilitarianism is, is the, the often called the greatest happiness principle or the most good you can do. So the idea of utilitarianism is that we, we can't call on God or moral law or, or any other um, kind of... Uh, overarching system to make our decisions for us. The best, the only way reason, the only reason dictated way we can work our way through the world is by saying, well, does this increase the quantum of happiness in the world or or not? And so the idea of the greatest good for the greatest number is a utilitarian principle that, that Singer works from. But he expresses it rather as the least suffering. So what Singer says is, where can I do the most to reduce avoidable pain and suffering in the world. So he doesn't, he doesn't think we can get rid of death or end suffering altogether, but he says there's lots of suffering that is avoidable. And so he's a, a, a vegan, for example, because he says you know, the farming of animals for our consumption is avoidable pain and suffering. We don't need to eat animals, so we shouldn't eat animals. So that's, that's one example, and Singh is well known for his, his animal liberation arguments. But you can take it to all areas of human endeavour as well. And he would say... 
you know, if I can do more to reduce suffering here, then I should do it. So the example that he uses or he used on Q&A on that Q&A episode was of, uh, you know, you can donate to blind dogs or dogs for the blind, guide dogs for the blind. And it costs, he says, about $40,000 to train a guide dog in a country like Australia. Or you can give to the Fred Hollows Foundation for 100 bucks. You can cure the sight of a child um, in Eritrea. So he says, you just do the maths and, and it's easy and you will, you will simply, you know, see that there's more good you can do in one way than another. Uh, now, this is where the complications start coming in. And this is where the question raised that you mentioned at, at, at the Wheeler Centre, the question raised by Rachel was, okay, and, and Rachel had worked in Africa and she'd worked in Central Australia. And she said, I know if I donate to a trachoma program in Central Australia, my $100 won't go very far because it's a sparsely populated area. It's an expensive place to operate. If I donate $100 to Eritrea, I probably will help more children. So are you saying I should give to Eritrea, not Central Australia? And, and, and that was where I thought this is a really difficult question and it's not as easy as numbers. No, it's not a, a simple equation of this plus this equals that. And it also, as you say, removes the subjectivity and personal passions of individual givers and philanthropists in the sense that uh, Singer is suggesting we should be uh, far more objective and rational and mathematical in even the the kind of areas that we choose, not just the locations, but this particular um you know, giving areas such as health or medical issues as opposed to, and as you highlight, the arts, uh, which is, you know... Yeah, so, so you, you shouldn't become a subscriber to Triple R and no. support Triple R. You should use that $75 instead to, you know, give to the Fred Hollows Foundation to cure someone's sight. So this is... Uh, and, you know, in some ways, of course, Sing, what Singer's saying is, you know, there, there are points at which you'd agree with him. So, mm, for mm. example... Um, he uses this example as well. The I think it's called the Amory Fisher Hall in at where the New York Philharmonic plays in in New York is being renamed because it's being refurbished, and someone has given a hundred million bucks or something to refurbish it, so it's being renamed in the name of that philanthropist. Now he would say, "Look, is this what's this really about? Is this about self-aggrandizement, or is it is it about helping people?" And so we can see that his argument has some, you know, it forces us to ask questions about why we are doing what we're doing and what we hope to achieve by it. Uh, and, and he would say we need reason to overcome our subjectivity because our subjectivity is suspect. It leads us, into, in, 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 it leads us to give money to guide dogs because they're cute and cuddly <laughs> instead of to curing the sight of children in Africa. So it's a, it's a complicated issue. Yeah, it really is. And it also puts a big question mark upon uh, high profile philanthropists and where they choose to put their money, because more often than not, that's not necessarily the only driving factor or the main driving factor. Obviously, you know, a great deal of philanthropists want their money to go far in terms of the impact that it has and that the people who receive it use it wisely and carefully. But this is a whole nother level, really, in terms of um, just how efficient your money, your charitable money is. Um, what, like, what is your view in this discussion around the the great contribution that's, as you say, the arts has to humanity and that it nourishes our soul and its importance in our lives? I mean, do you think that 
something that really does give us a great deal of joy and some might say even nourishes our rational faculties um you know shouldn't be given shouldn't have given our our philanthropic dollars well i think that if we come back to the utilitarian argument the idea that the the you know the important thing to do is to reduce suffering wherever we can now that makes sense in in the sense that and and again singer reasons his way to this position he says more or less if i was held upside down by my toe I would know that is a very unpleasant experience. It's I don't like it, um, therefore I want it to stop. Therefore, if someone else is held upside down by their toe, they experience that same thing and they don't like it, they want it to stop. Their suffering is, has, is of no more value than my suffering. I can't say that it matters more or less. So reason tells me that that acute kind of suffering is the first has the first moral claim on us. Reducing that kind of acute suffering is always the thing we have to do first. And when we see it, we have to tackle it now that that's that's reasonable it's a reasonable yeah, argument it's hard to argue with it's hard hard to argue against but at the same time uh what it evades is so so if you turn utilitarianism around to its more common formulation of the greatest happiness for the greatest number then we start having to ask very difficult questions about what constitutes happiness mm. or as many philosophers would put it flourishing human flourishing and we know that the absence of suffering is not in itself sufficient for a flourishing human life. So we take the example of refugees and Singer writes controversially about refugees and you could say that someone in a refugee camp in Africa has uh, is now safe from persecution. Let's assume for the moment that the refugee camp isn't run by warlords or, or, or whatever. Let's assume it's a very good refugee camp. They're safe from persecution. They have shelter. They have food. Therefore, Singer would say we should keep them there because it's cheaper we can help more refugees in a refugee camp in Africa than if they get on boats and come to Australia because it will be very expensive to provide them with an adequate um, living in Australia and so on. So this is a utilitarian argument. But the fact is that having your basic needs met, having shelter and food and an absence of physical suffering is, does not make for a complete life. And people want a sense of the future. They want a sense of their own agency. They want uh, to be able to do something and so they might choose suffering they might choose suffering in the form of a boat journey to australia because there are other goods higher goods that they want which is a sense of a future for their children for example so again i think the the calculation leads us into blind alleys or into problematic areas let's put it that way yes well it doesn't really square away with human nature and the human psyche which is often thinking into the future and looking towards something better as you say it's something that most people do um, and that's why we have this whole uh, development of mindfulness is trying to get people back into their current situation rather than thinking about the future in a positive or negative way um you talk about human flourishing and obviously um, our passions and the arts is one aspect of human flourishing, but also, um, you know, just really being able to be successful in whatever you do might be considered human flourishing. And you say it's something different for everyone and perhaps human agency is an area which might be um, slightly more flexible to be able to encompass the the idea of happiness. Could you expound upon that? Well, a bit? yeah, I wouldn't say that uh, it's necessarily something different for everyone. I mean, I think the the prevailing conception in our own society, a liberal society, is that uh, how people 
people's happiness is their own business and whether you choose to find happiness on a jet ski or um, going to the art gallery or being a volunteer at Triple R or, you know, um, working at a soup kitchen, whatever it is, that's your choice and, and none of us should judge anyone else for the, uh, the ways in which we pursue our own happiness. I would tend to actually agree with John Stuart Mill, who is a utilitarian light singer, who says there are certain types of happiness that are of more value and greater value than others. So he says famously, it's better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a fool satisfied. Better to be a human being dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. So there are the pleasures that we, we can look at various kinds of pleasures and they would be, you know, gratification of physical desires or, or um, desire for food or, or sex or whatever. And those are all it's, uh, Mill doesn't say we shouldn't have those things or those things aren't important, but he says there are other pleasures, which are the pleasures of the mind, of the moral sentiments, so our concern for others, of interest in the world around us. These are of more value. And when you experience these pleasures, you understand that they are of greater value. And not only are they of greater value to you personally, but they mean that you'll have an attitude of mind, he calls it a nobleness of character, which means you are concerned for the welfare of others, so the world itself will be a better place. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't think that happiness is necessarily something we can say, well, each to his own, whatever makes you happy, whatever rocks your boat, etc. I actually think we have to make judgments about what happiness is. And now this, uh, uh, or, or the, or, or the, in our, you know, we, we have to be able to say, well, this is of value and this is of lesser value. And so we come back then to the role of the arts and, and why I would mm. say we can't, we shouldn't ignore the arts or we, we shouldn't downgrade the arts. We, you know, I say in the article, would, would the world be a better place if Bach had devoted himself to curing leprosy instead of composing um, partitas? You know, and I think not necessarily <laughs> so. Yes, well, it, it does remind me of um, Gough Whitlam and, and his rationale for putting so much energy into the arts and obviously also Paul Keating being a huge arts fan and classical music fan as well and seeing that, um, seeking their own fulfilment in that but also seeing its broader role. It does um, remind me or, or make me think that perhaps those higher pleasures are not really linked to materiality or material possessions as such. Would you say that's the case? I think that... I think that's true. I mean, I think obviously, you know, we, we need a certain level of um, material. You know, we need to satisfy certain basic needs as human beings, or we will we will suffer. And that's Singer's point. I mean, Singer would mm. say, yeah, but you know, we still haven't addressed the basic, you know, suffering of so many people. So get your priorities right, Singer would say. Um, but but yes, I do think that Mills view or, or that view that we can distinguish between different sorts of pleasure would suggest that the higher pleasures are not material in nature, um, that they are more aesthetic, intellectual and moral above all, Mill would say, concerned with the lives of others. Uh, that That's where we find our full fulfilment as human beings. Mm, it brings you to think outside yourself, perhaps. Absolutely. Yeah, it's other yeah. Out, outward looking rather than self-interested. Inward, yeah. No, it's really interesting. Um, if people were interested in John Stuart Mill, because I, I really liked him, what would you recommend people reading? Uh, okay. Um, well, he wrote a lot of stuff and, and yes, the language is difficult, old-fashioned, and some of the attitudes are... 
I mean, Mill was a really interesting guy, right? He's and camp- a feminist. Yeah, campaigning for the rights of women to vote uh, in the middle of the 19th century, opposed to slavery. And yet he also had views about democracy, which suggested that some societies couldn't be, you know, were not ready to be democratic. They weren't civilised enough. So he, you know, um, uh, I, I would say you'd probably... So his most famous essays are on liberty, mm. which is, you know, where you get a lot of people like Senator Lionhelm, our most yeah. libertarian um, politician, is a big fan of John Stuart Mill. And he'd hold up on liberty and say, you know, this is where our freedom lies and we need to defend this. Um, so, But it's certainly worth reading. And then utilitarianism, which is another, which would out, I think that's outlining the kind of ideas that Mill, that I was quoting uh, mm. just now. And the two are an interesting comparison because they sit in some tension with one another. He also wrote very interesting things on representative government. But. Yes, yes. And, I mean, this is a real kind of applied ethics because we obviously have other versions of ethics which are not necessarily as easily applied now yeah. in every day. And that's the great thing about Singer because Singer is is confronting us with questions about what we do in our own lives, the decisions we make every day, what we choose to buy, why we buy this instead of putting money in, you know, donating our money to something else, etc. So he forces us to think through choices. And I think that's, you know, while, while my essay is a critique of Singer, I think he's also terrific. He is. He's hugely valuable. And it's really interesting to have such a different take on how we might look at it, because it does also make us question how we're currently giving and as you say at the end of your essay, it prompted you to reconsider what you were giving and and how you could do it in a way that would, um, you know, work and sit well with you as a person. I mean, what do? You, where are you at in your own kind of story <laughs> on this? I'm constantly struggling, yeah. I would say. And and also, I think giving money is easy in a it way. Is, yeah. I mean, it's not easy. And I, and if I mean, you have Singer, money, it's easier. Well, it's easy if yeah. you have money, of course. And and I mean, Singer gives thirty percent of his income, and and he says he thinks that's he thinks that's not quite enough. Um, and some people might say, oh, well, he has a plenty of income, so it's easy for him. But in fact. Um, there are lots of us who have a reasonable income and who don't give anything like that sort of proportion. So I would say it's a constant struggle, but it's also, you know, in a way by giving money, you, you deflect the actual or some of the work onto someone else. There are things we can do in our own society that involve political action or face-to-face work or, or whatever that involve our own effort um, and confronting maybe the inequalities in our own society that are sometimes more difficult than... The, what used to be the writing of a cheque, it's not anymore, but the making of a donation online. Yeah, say. absolutely. Um, it's perfect timing really to be thinking about this because we're talking to um, filmmaker Jolien Hoff uh, about this wonderful um, refugee learning centre in Indonesia which was set up by the refugees themselves and uh, is funded through donations and it really um, is probably an example of a very effective way of um, donating your money because uh, it's really instant that you see that these these humans have their own agency um, where they are in very um, very dire circumstances so perfect segue <laughs> into that. Peter thank you very much for joining us it's been fascinating to chat with you about your piece and if people want to take a look at this piece and read it in full um, it's called Surfing with Singer and it's on Inside Story and uh, remind me is it insidestory.org.au It is and it's um, it's free 
uh, you can subscribe to Inside Story. You won't be overwhelmed because it's uh, quality rather than quantity. It You'll get sure is. Uh, a few articles in every release, a couple of times a week. Um, so, yeah, uh, another um, cultural institution well-deserving of support, but uh, I agree. above all, support it by reading it. <laughs> Definitely. Please do check it out. It's also beautiful to, to look at and read, um, which also makes a big difference. Uh, so, yeah, thank you very much, Peter, and have a lovely week. Thanks, Amy. That was Peter Mayers, who's contributing editor to Inside Story, and he's written an essay called Surfing with Singer, and he looks at um, the the simple case that is effective altruism and perhaps that we might need to broaden that out a bit and challenge the assumptions and also what we value. Um, so do have a look at the full essay. It's a really interesting read. You are listening to 3RRRFM. This is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. And as promised, I have with me two amazing amazing, inspirational guests. And uh, they are Jolien Hoff, who's a filmmaker, and uh, also Muzaffar Ali, who uh, is a refugee. He's a photographer. He's a human rights activist. So thank you both for joining us. Thanks, Amy. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Amy. Uh, as refugee, former refugee, uh, and on Refugee uh, Week and Refugee Day, experiencing uh, my refugee experience, that's uh, that's really a pleasure to be here. It is really great to have you because your story and the story that you share is a really special and unique one. Um, and it's something that I'm, I'm sure will be really interesting to everyone listening today. Um, first of all, you both met um, in Indonesia. I want to, I guess, tease out your personal stories that brought you to Indonesia in the first place. So go a bit chronologically and then move into what the film um, really captures in Indonesia in Chisarua. So I might start with you, um, Muzaffa, and your background and experience. You're an Afghan Hazara. Um, and so first of all, could you share with us um, the reason why you had to leave Afghanistan and also what were you doing in Afghanistan before you left? I was very young when my father had to flee uh, Afghanistan um, after a civil war uh, broke up. Uh, so I grew up in Pakistan uh, where I got my basic education. But I returned uh, in late 2004 um, because I knew uh, a little bit English. Then I got a job at the UN. So I'm really lucky to get that prestigious job to work for the UN where I got a uh, unique opportunity to travel to those remote um, districts, remote areas in Afghanistan and see beautiful people and beautiful places where very few people has, uh, have got chance to go there. So there, uh, I was really happy that I'm making a difference uh, post 9-11 when Taliban was defeated, where my people were persecuted, uh, Hazara people. In Mazar-e-Sharif, in Bamiyan, in other areas, uh, we were discriminated before, but I was really excited to be a part of this change. So I started taking photos. My intention was to share these photos uh, for those people who grew, grew up uh, outside Afghanistan, they never saw their country, their motherland before, so I shared, started sharing them on uh, social media. So. It soon got uh, a lot of attention from um, Afghan people who never uh, saw Afghanistan or who uh, uh, the uh, foreigner, uh, foreigners, they uh, always they saw Afghanistan's uh, violent picture uh, during the war, but uh, it, it was a totally different. So uh, that was a new passion I, I got through this job. So, uh, but 
security situation got worse till 2000, uh, late 2012 when um, the last time when I was traveling with my wife and with my daughter when Taliban stopped my car and I was searched. I'm lucky I survived from that, uh, <coughs> that search. Uh, I again came to Pakistan. Uh, there was two huge uh, bomb blasts uh, in uh, within two months, where more than uh, 200 people were killed. Uh, then I decided to leave Pakistan as well because Afghanistan's situation was getting worse, and Pakistan was no longer safe for us. Then we came to Indonesia, and the time when I arrived in Indonesia. We spent a lot of money to bring all my family with me because I couldn't leave them back in Afghanistan or Pakistan. Uh, their life were in danger. So I arrived in Indonesia in a time when I had only $200 in my pocket. But somehow I believe that we will survive this, uh, this difficult time as well because at least we are safe. We are in peace because Indonesia is considerably more peaceful place than Afghanistan and Pakistan. Yeah. It certainly is. It certainly is. And could you share with, for those who don't know, what, um, I mean, obviously both of those countries are unstable and have security issues for a range of reasons. Um, and, you know, the Taliban is one of them. It's also, you know, um, because there's been a lot of war, ongoing war, and now um, there's, you know, ISIS in Iraq and Syria. So the, the region more broadly is quite um, fraught. But in terms of as a Hazara and um, the persecution that you faced as a as an Afghan Hazara, what, um, you know, why, what was behind that politically? Was it because the Taliban singled you out? and f for a particular reason for a lot of our for, for a lot of people if they know about the, uh, they have a little knowledge about afghanistan they uh, they consider afghanistan's history because of mujahideen russian invasion and the taliban and after uh, 911 and after 911 but our persecution hazara people's persecution started Uh, 300 years ago when they were driven out of their um, fertile land uh, across uh, Hillmond River which is now um, uh, uh, which produce now more than 80% of opium in the world uh, they belong to Hazara people we were driven out of these beautiful lands and the valleys on the mountains now it's called Central Highlands of Afghanistan where life is so difficult to live where temperatures goes temperature goes a minus 30 and in, in uh, summer season it's very dry but but Still, Hazaras, um, they live there. But uh, when Taliban came, they were uh, persecuting because uh, ethnically we were different uh, from uh, from rest of the uh, people and religiously we were different from rest of the people. So it was uh, because of these two reasons. Uh, so they, uh, we, we looked different. We, uh, uh, we spoke our culture, our language, religion, everything's different. So... The Taliban belong to the different sect uh, which we don't uh, belong and they thought we are infidels. Uh, we had to pay the tax which infidels pay to the Muslim rulers uh, and it was from the very past uh, perception and uh, they also stipulated that if we do not embrace their brand of Islam then uh, we would be persecuted but they persecuted us before that, uh, that period. And uh, that, that was like a very uh, uh, harsh experience for Hazar people. Uh, they were outcrying at that time that they were persecuted, but unfortunately no one was listening to them. Mm, well, it's really staggering to know that it's been 300 years and it's still continuing. Yeah, for my instance, I, 
my daughter is the fifth generation to be refugee when mm. she came to Indonesia. And the first time uh, we've got uh, a place we can call it home. We can live it for long. We don't foresee any threat in our life. Yes, and that's an amazing outcome and something we'll get to um, once we go through this story. So I'll bring in Jolien now to share how you both met as well as how um, you also met Khadim, who is the um, other part of the trio that yes, you formed. Yes, yes, the third musketeer. So Jolien, you were, you were in Indonesia and yeah. you, what brought you to meet uh, Muzaffa? Well, I was in Indonesia, I was living in Jakarta and my wife had a job there and um, she was set up and going to work. So I had a little time and at the at that time Australia had just reintroduced offshore detention, mandatory offshore detention and I'd been reading about refugees, we've all been reading, as an Australian we've been reading about refugees for nearly 20 years and I thought to myself, you know what, I've never met a refugee in my entire life, I've never met a refugee. So what do I know? Who are these people and where do they come from and what are they going to do now? So I looked online and I kind of worked out where the staging post for all the boats, those boats that were going to Christmas Island was. And it was about an hour's drive in this place called Chisarua. And um, so I got a car and an Indonesian driver and said, okay, please take me to Chisarua. And I, <laughs> I drove up the hill, up this long winding hill, very you know, in ordinary Indonesian road with shops on either side and I took this random left-hand turn and I went down the hill and across the bridge and around the bend and past this fork and then the driver, he pointed, look there, there. He said, that's a refugee. <laughs> and um, so I got out of the car and I stuck out my hand. I, I hadn't really thought about what I was going to do next when I did meet a refugee, but <laughs> I stuck out my hand. I said, hi, I'm Jolian and I'm an Australian. And, and that was Hassan and he said, oh, look, my English is not so good, but my cousin, Rizwana, she has, um, she, you should talk to her. So I went inside into the little house where it looked like the whole family was staying in this very little space and they made me cups of green tea and, and gave me lollies. And, um, you know, I asked all the dumb questions. You know, where do you come from? Why did you leave? Are you going to get a boat? How do you survive? all these kind of stupid questions and they explained that they were Hazara and no, they weren't going to get a boat, it was too dangerous and they'd smuggled themselves out and, you know, they were living there and waiting for this UNHCR process. And um, anyway, after I'd asked all my questions, Rizwana had a chance to ask me and she found out I was a filmmaker and she said, oh, you have to meet my brother, Mazafa. And so, okay, I said, okay, well, next time I come up. So a couple of weeks later I drove up the hill and that's when I met Mazafa and he had with him this young kid, Hadim. Hadim was this 17-year-old kid and he'd been filming on his mobile telephone. And when, I, when they... Well, first, Mazafa's photography was incredible photography from central Afghanistan, these beautiful landscapes, that, something, like something out of Star Wars, this, this kind of mysterious place that I'd never seen, and the people. And they were beautiful. That was beautiful photography. But then I saw this video footage of Hadim's that he'd shot on his mobile phone. Now, I'm a documentary filmmaker, and, and part of being a documentary filmmaker is you're always looking to represent the real, to reflect the honest truth of what's out there. And it, it, it gets very, very difficult to do, to, to present unmanipulated stories that are not like some kind of real, you know, so-called reality TV. So <clears throat> when I saw Hadim's footage... It was just incredible. It was just authentic, intimate life 
as a refugee in Indonesia because, and if, I found this out later, he'd been filming uh, his flatmates and they were laughing at him. You know, they were all older and they was, who is this 17-year-old kid very seriously filming on his mobile phone, getting all the shots and coverage and stuff. They thought, they were like, what are you doing? You're so silly. <laughs> um, anyway, that day we all met. We liked each other immediately. We met through a creative connection, which I think is kind of really important in our friendship moving forward. There was no... Uh, you know, neither of us had any more power than the other. We were kind of just there having it on a creative path. And we that day we decided we'd start a project together, a, a film project, and that's what... That was nearly four years ago and has... Um, kind of been what we've working on ever since yeah and the film project is called the staging post uh which had its premiere on sunday night in melbourne yes the full premiere i know it's yeah. been screened in bits um you know in the lead up to, yes. to get this momentum and to also have um crowdfunding which you've also yeah. done yeah. i mean let's talk about the subject of the film because mm. and it, it there's many aspects to this subject um but it does center around uh the refugees in chisarua and the community there and the amazing um agency that they had to set up a refugee learning centre yeah. from their own initiative with yeah. support from you because it was necessary. Mm -hmm. But really, it's so um, amazing, but not surprising. Uh, certainly, it really just shows that, um, you know, if you, as you say, accompany people, I know you said that the other night, when and you give them the encouragement, just whatever, the small amount that's needed, that, you know, refugees are immensely um, self-sufficient and uh, motivated and talented and highly skilled people, um, that you've really, you came together to build and, um, you know, grow this wonderful refugee mm. learning centre. Mm. Um, Muzaffa, what um, from the community? What was the reason why, or the driving force behind this refugee learning centre? Because in Indonesia, although it is much safer than living in Afghanistan or Pakistan, yeah. you're still very much constrained. And um, as you say, when you worked for the UN, you you recognise that education is a basic human right. So, could you share with us, I guess, how you got to, as a community, think about? this Refugee Learning Centre and then create it? Um, first of all, let me, let me recognise uh, refugees. Um, their life is uh, sometimes miserable, very hard, but it consists a lot of experience. They go through some uh, highs and lows. It gives them uh, huge lessons, immense lessons in their life. Uh, I grew, grew up in Pakistan uh, where... Um, uh, Life was very difficult, but my life changed when I went to uh, went back to Afghanistan and I got a job in the UN where I feel myself really lucky to meet and work with some amazing people with the UN. Uh, one of them was uh, Kamala. Let, uh, she was a human rights officer, so I worked with her when she was um, uh, having workshops for the prisoners in the prison. And uh, she... I remember one day uh, she told the prisoners that you have committed the crimes and you are serving uh, your sentence for probably for life, for 10 years, but you are deprived of some of your rights, but not all of your rights. And education is one of them. This is your right. And in one week uh, um, uh, workshop, she started this school and she brought big changes for those uh, 
prisoners in uh, remote Daikundi province. And uh, later on, after a couple of years, that prison had high school graduates from those prisoners. And that was a model for me that these can be the possibilities in difficult situations. Uh, when we arrived in Indonesia, uh, I was very curiously observing the situation, like refugees were living scattered, they were living in fear. Uh, Hadim and I, when we became immediately friends, when I uh, went to UNHCR office and he uh, recognized me, we became friends immediately. We were discussing these problems because he was living um, he came uh, two or three months before me in Indonesia and he knew about this, uh, the problems we thought why refugees are living in fear they have uh, left Afghanistan or Pakistan but they have to feel a bit more open because they are uh, in Indonesia they should feel more secure than their home country and they are now registered with UNHCR we realized um, there were some fears it doesn't belong to realities like they, they thought they cannot teach they cannot um, get education, they do not have access, their telephone calls are recorded, they are under surveillance by UNHCR or by immigration or by police. I thought refugees, they are not criminals. They should be more expressive than they are. And uh, that was the time when uh, Australian borders closed for refugees, the boats stopped, and I realized the refugees now, uh, they have to stay there for longer than previous times. That then we became friends, and um, Julian and Caroline, uh, Julian's wife, they were the first people um, giving uh, just like bringing these questions that what we would do if we are here for four years for while doing nothing, and we we just wait, and that was terrible time for us as well. So that's how uh, then we just uh, we we found that. Um, in this situation, when situ uh, security situation was getting worse in Afghanistan and Pakistan, those people who worked in um, prestigious organizations with international forces, they were interpreters, they were uh, development workers, they were humanitarian workers, human rights activists, they were fleeing the country. So we thought we can use this uh, opportunity. They can be teachers, at least. We asked from UNHCR to help us to set up an uh, association of refugees where we could teach our children. We offer some services like interpreting for the refugees when they go to doctors and if they have interviews. And uh, we could help them to identify really needy refugees. But they did not give us any, uh, any permission or they did not respond to our proposal. So nine months after that proposal, we decided to... Uh, take the matters in our own hand and we started that school but thanks to the support we received uh, that was uh, $600 uh, money for paying rent for three months for that small house mm -hmm. and that was the beginning of our school we always we were thinking that we have the agency we have all necessary components of a school like we have teachers we have parents and they are really ready to play their role and we have volunteers to uh, run this school but how we can run this for many years to come and that was the biggest question we were waiting to find the answers then we can start that school and we are really lucky having uh, some beautiful people uh, particularly from Australia they brought us books they brought us supplies for that school and we thought we are not alone 
and it was like a journey and we received tremendous accompanyship from from Australians most importantly and we are on the fourth year that we are running that school now we have more than like uh, around 200 students and they're young <coughs> as young as four years old and as old as 58 years old there are children for the first time they go to school in Indonesia they're learning in English they're using Australian curriculum and there are uh, women, they are attending school for the first time. And we feel really proud that uh, with the initiative we started, it's running for the fourth, uh, fourth year. And uh, it inspires other uh, refugees. It inspires UNHCR. Now they come to us and say, how did you manage to start this thing? So we are really uh, proud of uh, having that school. And we recognize the efforts that refugees put to establish that school, to run that school and to maintain that school. And it's refugee days. Uh, I think uh, they deserve a lot of uh, credits on on this school. They really do. And I mean, you, the whole film really follows you three as well as those other um, amazing refugees, including your wife Muzaffa, who is so impressive, and your beautiful daughter, <laughs> such a personality. Um, and also, I mean, you show the first school, the first building that you have, and you very quickly outgrow it, and you need to upgrade because there's so much demand. They outgrew it within a week. They, they rang us in a week and said we have 55 students, yeah. Yeah. And so now, you know, you've moved into this much larger place and, as you say, you've got about 200. Yeah. Does the demand continue? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I was up there last time I was there in January and there were, I think, just that one week I was there, we had an extra 15 people coming in on the waiting list uh, just for that school. But... The, the whole thing behind it is that it's, it's actually, it's not just a school, it's, it's, it's a number of ideas that have come together and it's an idea that's, that's spreading. So there's now actually seven, if not eight, schools in Indonesia following this model. And, and the kind of, we, we each have our own ideas and they kind of met that day. Mazafas is, of course, education is a human right. We're not criminals here. Mine was meeting a refugee and then that continues to be my role that I'm a connector between... Australians and refugees and you know I, I grew up in uh, Epping in Sydney which is you know think suburban middle 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 class so this film and this whole project you know I feel like if I can get my people if you like if I can get that middle middle class people that I grew up with to to just come face to face have a kind of you know a beer across the table not that they might drink beer but if I can get them face to face talking then we can you, you know, we can change attitudes. And then, of course, Hadim's with his mobile phone telling stories was he wanted to raise the voice of refugees and show a better face and show a, show a positive face. So these, these are just three... The school is one thing and it's mm. busy and it's full, it's overfull, and then there are now many, many more because it's, a, it's an idea. It's an idea that refugees have that capacity and it's also an idea that Australians, they can just go over and meet or they can Skype or they can follow on Facebook the journeys and, and, and get to know people. So it's very much at its core a community-led project and it's two communities, the refugee community and the Australian community, bypassing all institutions bypassing all those international organisations, those millions and billions of dollars, we're bypassing the whole thing and just going, hey, when an individual over here meets an individual over here, together we can, we can do something and that's what, what's happened and that's what we're really, really proud of, this, uh, this little school that 
really is just an idea that's now starting to have these quite dramatic, quite big outcomes. Mm. Mm. And as you say, it's become a model for others. I mean, have they also, those other projects, been led by refugees in Indonesia as well? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. They're all very much led by refugees and none of them are quite at the level of sophistication that we have now, but they're trying their best, they're bringing things together. They're also meeting connectors like people in Australia like myself and they're kind of making friends and making connections and working out their own little process. And so... Uh, I think there's there's no real silver bullet. There's no button that you can press. This is just a community process of people learning, people gradually getting to know each other, people saying, hey, I can help here, hey, I can help here. And the other thing I wanted to point out is that it, it's a two-way education process. There's, there's, the Australians don't just go over there and, and, and drop things. We have a situation now in Chisarua where people go over and intern with the school or they go we have this uh, billeting system where Australians can go and live with the refugees and 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 have dinner with them and and exist with them in that space and that's just a beautiful beautiful thing to have people communicating sitting down and having dinner together and talking it just Mm. bypasses any uh of that uh kind of aggressive political chatter or or, or aggressive political stance it's Mm. just uh people yeah because it's an exchange an equal exchange really and one of the things that hadim says in the movie which is really um surprising and he kind of finds it amusing is Mm. that uh one of the younger um women who comes across to volunteer at the school says well I want to stay here and you know stay with you but um, I have to ask my mother first because (laughs) I'm told refugees are dangerous and she was scared and that really is such a poignant moment in the film that highlights just how far removed we are from truly understanding the true experience of refugees and And I think that that the film, one of its gifts is to really open our eyes to the beauty of these Mm. humans in Chisarua. He's he's an incredible... He has, for a 17-year-old kid, Hadim has this incredible wisdom and an incredible viewpoint on the world. But when I I realised that... uh, that that things can be presented in different ways was actually when Hadim was telling me his story about, you know, his school was bombed in one of those big bombs in Kuwaita and then he told me how he got through into Malaysia and spoke to the smugglers and then in the jungle and they stamped this fake passport and then he came here and then four times he tried to get a boat to Australia but every time something happened and one time he got arrested but then like later that night he jumped out over the fence and kind of ran away and I was sitting with him and it was across my kitchen table and that's when I realised that as a that kind of middle class suburban Australian, if if he was sitting down the pub with one of those guys I went to school with, they'd be going, bloody good on you. You're, yeah. You're a trooper, you know. Yeah, rip him, mate. 17 like, years Yeah, of you've, you've travelled across the world, you've yeah. survived this, you've escaped, please. And... Like sitting face to face with him, that story was just a, a story of inspiration and and something that I, it was bloody Australian mm. and and um, but I, I was also aware that that same story, you could say, well, he's an illegal immigrant, he's you know flouted the law internationally, he's like been dealing with smugglers, he's tried to get a boat, he's escaped convict, so you could write all these things. Oh, and possibly a terrorist. I, you know, I don't know. You could write all those things around that same story, but on a face to face level, on a on a direct level, all that all that 
falls away and you just see people as people and I mean I hope that the film the film is just a very honest story it's just a very kind of raw story it doesn't have any tricks or or anything it just tells a very straight chronological story of what happened and uh it, it Sometimes I think it's almost a, like a how-to. This is how you should just... Why don't, why don't you just do this? Go and meet somebody. From from my side, that's all I did and uh, it's been an amazing journey for me. Mm. Yeah, it's so radical in its simplicity that it bypasses all that political bureaucracy and spin. Sometimes we see these, uh, we see these uh, brochures for big ideas conferences and innovation <laughs> things and, and we say, oh, we just have a little idea, we just have the tiniest idea and yeah. we have these three very, very simple, simple, tiny ideas but, wow, we're really amazed now three years down the track that these tiny little ideas and they're still the same ideas but now we're starting to have some success with the thing like the school and 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 these successes that we could never even imagine like Mazafa mentioned earlier before the UNHCR who told refugees when they arrived they couldn't be involved in organized activities they now have a new Facebook page and guess whose Facebook posts they're sharing on <laughs> all the schools and yeah. they're saying how wonderful all these wonderful things refugees are doing so that's just that's an incredible result. Mm. That's, a, that's a massive international organisation that's taken its lead from a little idea that Mazafra and the, the refugees had three years ago. So, yeah, small ideas. Exactly. I'm talking to Jolyon Hoff and Muzaffar Ali of the documentary The Staging Post. Now, Muzaffar, I know that um, those who are listening will be really interested to know how you got to Australia in the end and what that um, was like because, and I don't want to give away the heartwarming moments of the film, but it is p- pretty special. Um, you know, Muzaffar, how did you, when did you find out and, and get here and what's happened for you since the time when the second bomb blast occurred in Koita in Pakistan on Hazara people where a lot of people uh, were killed in that uh, I remember one uh, afternoon I got together all my family I said uh, we cannot live here anymore so we have to leave but where we would go we didn't know because if we go to Iran it's safe it's secure but there is big chance of being deported back to Afghanistan. We cannot go to Turkey or Europe because the route is very dangerous. The only way was left for us, uh, the expensive way to come to Indonesia. The time when I sold everything of my family, the jewelry of my wife, the toys of my daughter, the books and the cups and the utensils and everything we had, we could get some money to reach Indonesia. And as I said, I had only $200 in my pocket the night, uh, the evening I arrived uh, in Jakarta. I never thought I would end up in Australia. I never thought, uh, I, I didn't know what is the resettlement process, though I worked for the UN, but I realized that this uh, refugee crisis is much deeper than my knowledge of the UN. Uh, and UNHCR, what UNHCR was doing, the resettlement process, uh, how it works, uh, most of the refugees, they didn't know because they were living in fear. They were not sharing their each other's experience. Mostly they didn't know these things. So I'm one of the very few lucky people from Indonesia to be accepted as a refugee and get resettlement in Australia uh, in a short period. In less, less than two years, I came to Australia. 
but I made everything clear for other refugees, like how uh, it, it is, uh, what is a refugee uh, status um, interview, how it goes, what are the requirements, uh, because a lot of re- uh, refugees, they were um, doing mistakes. They didn't know what this re- interview means to them and what is the resettlement, uh, resettlement interview. So it was, it was um, for me, the, uh, a big experience, and I wanted to share this to other refugees for the first time. And when I was accepted, I felt I'm really lucky uh, when uh, I was going to Australia because I had my friends, Julian, and many other friends who came out to our school. And I was feeling that, yes, this could be my home. And I was very emotional the day when I left the school. uh, The teachers, uh, the friends and the parents, they were crying because it was uh, an emotional uh, moment for them. One of them were leaving. And uh, I was also very emotional because I was leaving them behind where we did something really good, incredibly big thing we did together. And we had achieved big, big goals together. When I came here in Australia, uh, it was also, again, emotional for me because I left um, some emotional people behind in Chisarwa. Then I was welcomed with some emotional and true Australians here. (laughs) I must admit, uh, I was... I felt I was really welcomed, warmly welcomed. And this was the thing, uh, this was the first feeling it came in my whole life that uh, as a human being, uh, I am in a place where I will be uh, respected here. I can live here with dignity and I will have um, a, a fair go. That was the first time because when I was getting education in Pakistan, uh, I mm, experienced discrimination by my teachers, by the students, by the people. When I was in Afghanistan, I was discriminated because of my uh, face, because of my ethnicity. I am Hazara. And there was all, there were also um, fear of uh, persecution, being killed by, by, by the commanders, by the Taliban. So when I stepped in here, with legal status, that was the first time I felt I am something. So that was an incredible feeling and um, uh, very emotional for me. And I want to uh, like um, tell everyone that, yeah, I'm very lucky to be here in Australia. We're very lucky to have you, I've Thank got you. to say. <laughs> I'm feeling very proud <laughs> and emotional myself. Um, and and you were doing amazing things, you and your wife, um, you know, and continuing your education, higher education as well, and contributing immensely in our society. I, I think that one of the things in the film is <coughs> uh, that what it it shows another possibility it shows the alternative possibility is that yeah you know like in our story australians are heroes and refugees are capable and fabulous people and that's that's our story and what happens when that you take that view is yeah you have schools and then when they arrive you know they're welcomed and they're of course you know Mazafa and his family yes they're already in university, Nagina, Mazafa's wife's already getting distinction averages in uh, first class in her first year at university. So, you know, there's no doubt that that that, that family's going to go on and and contribute greatly. And and of course, Mazafa's daughter, who's now five and has started school um, in 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 Adelaide, where they are now. Um, so yeah, I think that's 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 the story and that's the message of the film. It, and that's the power of community and a, and a little idea that that 
plays out in in so many uh, in so many ways. Um, mm. I think one thing for Mazafar when he arrived, and and this came through the school, is is that he had social capital, so he was able to meet you know reach Australians, whether it was myself and my wife, but there were many others, you know, who were all very willing to you know Mazafar come over and have dinner at our place. How can we help you? And Whenever our now after a few years, when students and teachers are getting resettled, occasionally we get a few to Australia, a few to Canada, a few to America. But when they go, the students are going directly into their age-appropriate years. So they're not doing ESL, they're not doing anything. They're going directly into fourth class, fifth class, sixth class, whatever, it, whatever it is. And the teachers, the older ones, they've seen Nagina in 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 twelve, fifteen, eighteen months. She's got herself into first year university, and they're like, yes. I know what the possibilities are and uh, and I'm going to go out and I'm going to... I know that that's what I can do and I'm going to make it happen and I know to make it happen I've got to hit the ground running and, and I've got to go. So the, the school is kind of providing in all these ways that I, we could never have imagined in the in, in the beginning but these, these beautiful kind of results that are coming. They are and it also has a beautiful story about the women oh, yeah. um, and, yeah. and them really so empowered and playing soccer and... Oh, they led the way. Yeah. They absolutely led the way. And probably still do. <laughs> they definitely, that's um, empower... Letting women free for the first time in their life, this is one of the goals of this school, uh, where women, they come from Afghanistan or Pakistan or Iran, they live, mostly they lived as refugee, uh, they lived in fear. But when they come to school as teacher and volunteer, all of our teachers and the management team at school, they're volunteers, they're refugees. But what incentive they get from the school is to be free to go to play soccer to be involved in uh, in sports. Uh, so they love it because most of the uh, teachers, for the first time, they kicked a ball. That's in <laughs> Indonesia. That was really uh, the first time when they played soccer. Uh, it was a dramatic day when they went to watch uh, our students competing with Indonesian students. That day was uh, a... F- a a rainy day when they the, uh, the Indonesian children they didn't turn up, so our kids they were really missing. Uh, they because that once a week they go they go and compete with uh, with Indonesians and our mm, teachers mostly females. They they love to watch uh, watch them play f- soccer. So when they didn't turn up, uh, there were uh, a chance for them to come back home. Uh, they were already wet. And the other possibility was to play together. So they decided to play. But our kids, they were good football players, <laughs> much better players than the women. So they had an they started, advantage, didn't they? Yeah, they started playing, the women started playing football with their hands <laughs> and they were running all around in the rain. That was the start. And my wife says that was one of the happiest moments in my life. Uh, and uh, and they continued that that uh, that sport. They they found a new love. Uh, they could they could express, and that was more important because for them most of the time they are waiting for their resettlement. They are waiting for UNHCR call. They have uh, difficulties at home, but sports was the time when they go and forget all these things, mm. and they they loved it. They're, they're, uh, one of the main. Uh, goals of the school is to keep sports going for the kids and for these women teachers. Yeah, yeah. And 
let's just talk finally about what people can do because that's really critical and you've already really highlighted some of what people can do but Jolien mm-hmm. you know you mentioned at the end of the film there are things people can do what what exactly oh look absolutely um you know in in a, in a funny way uh i always think the parallels with the refugees and the unhcr with this film is this film's a community film there isn't uh, broadcasters or agencies or governments or anybody supporting it you're not going to see it at seven o'clock on the or eight o'clock on the television but what you can do is we want to get this film out we want everybody to watch it so we're holding community screenings around the country we want people to get in touch with us at thestagingpost.com.au the staging post um Please get in touch with us. We'd love to have community screenings at your schools. We've been talking with us, like, small sections at universities and those screenings have gone really, really well. Um, so schools, we spoke to some uh, Year 5 and Year 6 kids yesterday at a school here in Melbourne and they just love to hear the stories um, directly from someone like Mazafa and... They ask all the questions that they want to ask and, and Mazafa can stand up in front and, and answer them and then, you know, that process just just connects us on a, on, a, on a direct level. So, yeah, we'd love to get this film out as widely as mm. possible. We're definitely going to screen it again in Melbourne. We're looking for venues and places to do that at the moment. Um, the school itself, if, if you look up the Chisarua Refugee Learning Centre, you can follow their Facebook page and that's enough just to follow their journey and acknowledge their existence is something that, that all the students and the teachers who get up and uh, and go to school and work every day, they love the acknowledgement. Um, of course, there's possibilities if you want to kind of support the school, if you want to, to make donations, there's, possi- there's possibilities there. But we just want to connect people and we want to kind of tell this story that, you know, from my side and from Mazafa's side, that we can connect and we can give to each other and we can be a part of each other's journey and the the, the imaginary line between us is doesn't need to exist we can step over it no and you did mention that melbourne people have been particularly oh, melbourne. enthusiastic oh melbourne is out i you know <laughs> i i can't i can't say you know I am such a Sydney boy. I can't tell you like the mythology that my wife has to put up with. My <laughs> my great grandmother's buried on the cliffs at Clavelli, and my great great grandfather was Captain Billy Ringland, who rode sh- sh- trading ships up and down the coast of New South Wales. And um, but Melbourne has absolutely tripled Sydney and outdone itself in its support of this project from day one, from the screening on Sunday night that was absolutely packed to the rafters Mm. with 250 people, but to the first person who took books to the school, to the donators, to the people. There's there's people in Melbourne, the final scene of the film, I could not be filmed, but I was in desperate. I had no money left and I made one phone call to a Melbourne person and they said yes, and they made a donation of five thousand dollars so that I could go and film the final scene in Indonesia. So, Melbourne, this I'm so proud of you. I think um, I'm going to have to move here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we'll welcome anyone, especially at arty types and those who really care about human rights, like you both do. And um, and I also want to encourage people to look at Muzaffar's photography because it is amazing, yes. truly beautiful. Yes. Thank you both Thank for you. joining me. 
Thanks, Amy. Oh, thanks, thanks, thanks Amy. Us. Thanks so much. It's an absolute pleasure. That was Muzaffa Ali and also Jolyon Hoff, and uh, they are two parts of a trio behind the Staging Post documentary, which uh, premiered on Sunday night in Melbourne, and they're looking to screen more in Melbourne, and once we know when those are, are coming up, I will be posting them very widely so that you can all follow up and see it for yourself. It is absolutely well worth uh, watching and doing what you can to bridge that gap because there's no need for it to be there at all. We have the absolute pleasure to have with us in the studio Sophie Cunningham, who is a freelance writer and uh, well known in the Melbourne community and in Australia um, for some great books, including a book entitled Melbourne, which is um, about walking through Melbourne. And uh, it's just a wonderful book. I always look around and see it in readings staring at me. Thank you so much, Sophie, for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to have you because uh, you wrote this this essay called Biala Story. And um, and it's interactive at the level that it's got imagery, but it also has um, beautiful video at the top of it and some amazing nature sounds throughout. And um, it is somewhat immersive in the sense of, of the topic that you're talking about. And it's I know just when I confess that I didn't do all that. <laughs> um, that that um, an editor at Griffith Review did a lot of that work, so I provide image provided images and indeed I did the recording of the birds and that kind of thing but he yeah Jareth was pretty amazing (laughs) yeah well it is um I think it helps to be honest when you're reading about something like trees and nature to really experience the surround I guess sensations that is nature because it's not necessarily an abstract concept it's funny because a few people said to me oh are you disappointed that it's um not being printed in in Griffith Review and I'm like really not Mm. a lot more people have access to it because I can send the link to them but it actually is such it is kind of not quite three-dimensional, but does have a kind of immersive quality, which I'm just so pleased by. Yes, and it, it really works. And this is this particular essay is the winner of the 2017 Nature Writing Prize, which is um, it's presented by the Nature Conservancy and also supported by the McLean Foundation. Yes. Um, when you set out to write this piece, um, well, I guess what provoked it? What got you thinking about River Red Gums? And, and I, know, I know you do cover this somewhat in your in your piece, but I, I want to understand, I guess, the context from where you're coming from as a writer and whether trees had um, some kind of special quality for you or had already sparked your interest before this essay. The trees had already sparked my interest, but I did specifically write this essay because I knew that um, the the prize was being offered and, and I, I like to give myself, I need to give myself deadlines as, as yes. a freelancer. So <laughs> it was a slightly strategic move. Obviously, I obviously thought it would be lovely if I won, but I also wanted to kind of focus my work because as might be apparent from this essay, my interests are so broad ranging that I do actually have trouble pulling, <laughs> pulling it in. I had been thinking a lot about these trees when I was walking Melbourne's boundaries as a part of a project that I called Boundaries that um, the Mel- um, City of Melbourne um, f- funded and I did that work with a photographer, um, Diana Wells. And as we were working and walking and talking, I realised that most of the trees that we were talking about in relation to this pati- that other essay were river red gums and it took me a while to realise that they were river red gums because they can they take on many forms and they look very different in different places and the veteran gums which can be between four and eight hundred years old do have a kind of 
gravitas. They were like ants out of, you know, a Tolkien novel. Yeah. And I, it took a little while for me to realise that they, they were all trees with a similar kind of both cultural history and, and obviously sort of um, geographic and in, in environmental history. And so when I was thinking that I wanted to write a more detailed um, essay, that I decided I wanted to kind of pursue my interest in, in these trees. The, I've also, however, become more broadly desirous <laughs> of, um, of, of trying to observe things closely. Uh, yeah. And we talk a lot about... Um, environmental degradation and those kind of issues without necessarily stopping and looking what's around us and so I've one of the ways I want to kind of work with that issue or is to remind us of what we're in danger of losing and just to you know I hate to say stop and smell the roses stop and look (laughs) at the river red gums but so I've been working with other trees as well because they are all, all around us but we don't we just sort of take them for granted. Yeah, we really do. Uh, I can say that I'm on your bandwagon mm. and uh, have become slightly obsessed by trees recently. But I, it's because I have these beautiful, tall, lemon-scented gums. Oh, I love them. Um, aren't they beautiful? And the the, I, the bark and the trunks are just so majestic and the, the flowering that happens from them is mm. also beautiful. But as you say, the river red gums are very unique and they're somewhat a little bit grungier in the sense that they're not perfect, so to speak. In our, in our you know, Western conception of what perfection might be, they, as they age, you say, you know, the, the leaves become a bit shriveled and, you know, those... They get really big burls on them, those big kind of nut, like big warty yeah. <laughs> knots of wood. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And there's some really large ones... Um, that are pictured on the, in this essay that that are really they the the patterns in the trunks are weaving and as you say you know they can die or be dead but still be there um, and acting as a habitat for other beings and animals yeah. in that area. There are a couple of issues that that you raise. One is that it's important to allow. Um trees that that aren't living anymore to stand because they, they continue to kind of be part of, of the ecosystem and you see that more and more around Melbourne in parks actually that they are are being left to stand and while I agree with you that they are very grungy I suspect that their history makes them grungier that is the taller straighter more elegant river gums probably were more likely to have been logged mm. so you're not going to see many sort of Towering, beautiful-looking ones because they would have would have disappeared over the last two hundred years. So, to some extent, they're kind of slightly squat. I think of them as sort of like trolls. <laughs> um, that that kind of squat quality is probably what saved them. Yeah, because I mean, you talk about the the ones that are remain in Melbourne. There's a few of them that are really large or significant within an urban context. Yeah. But that you said that they actually would would have been much more common. And you talked about, um, you know, the Yarra River and that there would there would be many, many of those um, river red gums, uh, rev, river red gums, sorry. Yeah. It's a tongue twister, that one. Um, you know, near the rivers, wherever they may be in Victoria, because that's, um, you know, they're so resilient. They uh, seek out water even in the most... Um, dry and arid environments but they also seek out flood and um, thrive in flooding as well i mean in in the melbourne context and the river red gums that you've seen in an urban context i mean could you share with us some of the stories of those trees that really sparked your imagination the one of the more famous trees in melbourne is a separation tree which 
tragically but perhaps relevantly had, was um, murdered. I don't think there's another word of way of putting it. It was ringbarked a couple of times. You find that in the botanical gardens and it's famous for a range of reasons. One is that... Um, there was a celebration about the separation of Melbourne from New South Wales in 1852. I think I think I've got that right, um, and so it became known as a separation tree for that that reason. Um, it's no longer alive, but it's it's been sort of kept there as as a kind of statue in a sense, mm. a kind of iconic tree. And opposite is a tree of the similar age that actually isn't squat. It's inc- extremely um, tall, and qu- I just re- I was sort of looking at it. And I suddenly clocked how old it was. I could just, partly because I had been researching the separation tree, I suddenly realised what I was looking at. And I had been reading about the fact that the uh, trajectory of the Yarra had been changed by engineering and I knew that their roots were sent down to kind of reach waterways quite quickly. It's one of their sort of um, adaptations to to, um, the kind of environments they live in. And I realised that there was a sense that that tree would have felt in its roots the shifting of of the trajectory of the Yarra, of um, the root of the Yarra. And I just... (laughs) <laughs> I said, I feel a bit insane when I say this. I felt like the tree was saying, you need to know more about me. I just realised that I kind of just walked through past so many of these um, beautiful old trees and I don't really think about the history. And I, because I had, because of an Instagram account I have, I had been writing quite a lot about trees and urban environment. I said, I, not only did I think I want to know more, more about trees and the urban environment, but I also realised that this tree was so much older than the urban environment and that had had seen all the changes that white settlement had wrought. It has, and so many trees have, or at least they've been affected by the changes since. Um, And certainly, I mean, talking about um, the tree, is it in St Kilda that... uh, Nagari, 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 I'm sorry, my pronunciation. I'm just going to read it out, N-G-A-R-G-E-E. Nagaji tree? Yes, it's also known as the Corroboree tree. And it, there were, um, Corroborees were... Um, or celebrations, community celebrations of the local people were, were held there. And that I think there are paintings, so certainly the eyewitness accounts of white settlers seeing, seeing the tree being used in, in such a way. And it also is extremely tall and it sort of sits quite near um, a main kind of system of, of, of roads around St Kilda Junction. And I am fairly sure that they... It's been that they've built roads around it. Yeah. Uh, certainly, I know an early road um, carriage route was went around it because the tree was so respected, and that seems to have been followed um, in the you know decades since. I haven't mm. been able to kind of confirm that, but it sits so close to where the major roads are, and it's still really health. That's actually probably the healthiest of those really old um, trees that I write about. Mm. There's there's a tree, uh, a, a red gum that has died in the Fitzroy Gardens, which has become quite a famous sculpture. sculpture known as, well, there are two of them, fairy trees. Um, there are some scar trees uh, in Yarra, Yarra Park near the MCG, a, cu- a couple of scar tree and trees, and scar trees means that they've been used to create coolermen or canoes or a range of different tools by the, um, often the Wurundjeri, but, but obviously um, there were a lot of clans m- moved through the area. And um, there's one at Burnley Oval as well. And, and then in Bandura there's a whole lot of, both living and, and dead scar trees, like a big cluster of them. Mm. And did you say there's also one at Melbourne Uni? 
No, I just talked about a significant red gum. There, there, there's um, quite a few red gums yes, at, yes. At, at the university. But not river red gums. They're, sorry, river red gums, yep. but they're not scar trees. They're, right, they, right, There's right. not a particular story other yeah. than they exist. They, they are there. And they There rep- are a lot of gum trees there. Yes, but they also do kind of represent a particular argument about a heritage which goes on, not just at Melbourne University, mm. across Melbourne, that is when a tree dies, do you replace like with like? Mm. Um, so say, or, or the elms that have been dying in Carlton Gardens near where I live, do you replace them with elms despite the fact they're very challenged by drought or do you plant lemon-scented gums, for example, um, or other trees that might have been in the area? Um, they seem to be planting a lot of Moreton Bay figs, which were not native to that landscape, but are Australian natives. At, at Melbourne University, so I know that, that some people would be interested in planting river red gums when, when birch trees or other trees die as a result of drought. But I think some, I assume some members of that kind of community think that what they're preserving is white heritage, post-settlement heritage, which is the kind of more European, the plane trees and the other trees that would have been planted when the university was landscaped. Like, this is not about just about Melbourne Uni. The argument no. happens across... Um, yeah, across the country. And but I was involved in this argument at, when I was a gardener at Alcatraz, which is another story, <laughs> and gum trees were falling there and they were having to replace gum trees with gum trees and they were pretty cranky about that, to be honest. They're like, yes. well, we have to do it because we repl- but they don't really like gum trees there. So um, it's an argument being had across the world, in fact. It is. And, I mean, can we just stay there for a moment because the city of Melbourne um, had a, a bit of a strategy, a tree diversity strategy as to yes. what to do. And um, and I note that uh, even where I am in, in Carlton, there are um, new trees being there, moving in there or being put yeah. there um, that I can't even identify the species because it's definitely not a gum and they're around um, these other gum trees that have been there for at least I'd I'd say 40 or 50 years of very very tall um, lemon scented gums and it makes me wonder whether we're being strategic and thinking about the trees and the other trees around those trees because as we know from the hidden life of trees and other books um, and science in that area that when you place trees together that are of the same species and even from the same seed they thrive better and support each other more especially in an urban environment that's already challenging i mean what do you think about this dilemma i think that 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 some people take it very seriously and, ob- and, the, and there would be some sort of some of the strategy would be, would be extremely well thought through mm. however there would be pressures like not putting trees up that drop their branches river red gums love to drop limbs suddenly and that's obviously creates legal issues there's a lot of argument about plane trees because of uh, they cause allergies um what kind of root system are not going to damage the drains in particular areas so they're they're dealing with so many kind of urban issues that i'm not sure that the trees needs can always be prioritized even though people who work with them would care about them but i i like you now think of trees as a group and if I see a tr- an old tree standing, I think, oh, it must be lonely. Yeah. Which again, some sort of crossing over to the to some kind of crazy tree loving. I'm so glad I'm not the only loving. one who thinks that. But I think they quite literally though protect each other. Yeah, I mean, so they you do. see it with massive storms. You see it with um, cyclones in North Australia, and and you see England's having an increasing number of really savage storms, and the the smaller the forests or the fewer trees in any particular 
in any one area, the greater the likelihood is that they're going to be knocked over. So in a really literal sense, they protect each other, let alone those sort of more subtle things that was written in ways in which um, was discussed in the, the hidden trees, the hidden life hidden of life trees. Hidden life of trees, yeah. Uh, we interviewed Peter actually, um, and that was on uh, on my first ever show um, for January 17. So I've been since influenced a great deal like by his thinking. Lot, yeah. yeah, and it's all backed up by science, but he puts it in such a beautiful relatable way um not i tried to do that in this essay by yes, which i do. mean i allowed <laughs> myself to um be emotional and yeah. sentimental as well as as talking about the science because i think we do react um to trees like that but also i think these are emotional issues and for some people they are that's kind of issues about the spirit but when I sent it to SA, um, to a couple of scientists to check it, one of whom was my brother so he would be a bit more generous on these matters but <laughs> I had to say I, I'm aware that I sometimes cross, you know, I allow myself to be lyrical in a way that is not just sort of scientific. Yes, yes and you talk about... I think about, that's fine. <laughs> oh, I agree. I think it needs both sides. It needs the full aspect of mm. being human and encountering trees. Exactly. Yeah. And this is what this does and you talk about having that spiritual feeling and you say, well, I'm going to wait till a better word comes along but for now we're going to say spiritual. It was me cheating really, wasn't it? Because clearly yeah. I just wanted to use that word but being slightly <laughs> defensive But it, it is really difficult because it, it's really hard to describe a word that accurately summarises that, mm. that kind of connection that you can have with a tree. Yeah, well, sort of, I think, awe and respect. Yeah. With, with, but, but trees do... They talk about forest baths, I think, in Japan. I was having this conversation with my partner the other day, um, the idea that you can go and sit among trees. And I have to say that after Trump was uh, elected and I felt very distressed, I mean, so did most of the, a lot of the world, yeah. but um, yeah. I did actually go and sit um, in the, among the scar trees out at Pandura, partly because I knew that I had to do that work, but partly I thought the only thing that's going to kind of stop me obsessing and or allow me to keep focused on just trying to do the work that I do um, is, is by seeing some beautiful old trees that kind of give me a sense of the span of time. Mm, yes, and these river red gums do give you a true sense of that span and you write in this piece that you visited the Barma Lakes um, which is now Barma National Park. Yes, over, about 10 years ago I think it became a yeah. national park. And that's significant in the sense that it's an area where it's largely if not solely in terms of the trees, river red gums. They're, 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 they're most... Um, they're certainly the largest part of the ecosystem, and they're the um, it is the most significant stand of, of those trees left in the in the world. Yeah, and going to that place, which where you are really surrounded by a river and river red gums, what is that experience like? It's very beautiful, uh, but it's also I mean I was lucky because I had been warned if it's over forty degrees and humid, it's slightly nightmarish um, <laughs> a lot of mosquitoes and it can flood a lot so I, I wouldn't necessarily have been able to get in at certain times of year but it it's even though the trees are the most obvious thing there's just such so much other life partly as a result of of, of the trees so there's um on the you know there's insects and there's birds and there were um, a lot of kangaroos and wallabies and emus and rumby and I th I'm sort of going to run out of uh, the various things <laughs> I saw but that you really had a sense that you were in a forest that was much bigger and nothing to do with you uh, 
it is dependent on on the the generosity of humans, as, as I go into in the essay, because they have the um, the flood. The timing of floods is now artificial, and is particularly important because while these trees um, regenerate in quite. Oh, they seed quite easily. It, it's quite a complicated um, range of things need to happen for them to get old, to, to mature, and that. Uh, but you're not really aware of that when you're just sort of walking deep in the forest. You just mm. get a sense of being in a really wild place. Yeah, and that's a rare thing, I guess, from for people who live in the city mm. to experience a place where it's largely untouched by humans and, and deliberately kept as an ecosystem. Around the edges, you're very aware of human um, of logging because the trees are very similar ages, so you don't have the kind of as many generations of, of types of different looking trees. They're slightly homogenous in a way that it wouldn't have been, um, you know, two thousand years ago. In itself, that has a kind of beauty because you get to see the flood lines and they kind of they become these kind of incredibly sculptural landscapes. The other thing I'd just say is that amazing, um, if you're into bird watching, which I'm, I'm not a serious bird watcher, but I certainly like to go and sit in a bird hide and watch birds, amazing wetlands around there that don't have many river red gums but have a lot of, lot of bird life. Just that whole area is pretty extraordinary and you don't get a lot of, given how important it is and how beautiful it is, you don't get a lot of tourists up there, I don't think. No. Well, I, I haven't yet been myself, but mm. after reading this, I'm desperate to go. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Sophie, I, I'm really glad that you've written this because it's historical, it's scientific, it's personal and it's spiritual all at the same time. And I feel like that's something that's quite unique in a nature writing um, field. What a nice thing to say. Thank you. No, it's, it's really <laughs> true. And I hope that our, that uh, that we can get more people to read this wonderful piece, which is freely available to read, as yeah, you just said. Just Google Griff- Griffith Review and, and Sophie Cunningham will be our stories and it'll come up. Yeah, and we will post that as well to Twitter and Facebook yeah. for people um, to, to seek out. Um, thank you so much, Sophie, for, for being so generous no. um, with your time and stories and experience. It's just a joy to have you. Thanks for asking me. That was Sophie Cunningham, who's a freelance writer in Melbourne. She's written this beautiful piece. It's called Biala Stories and it's been published by the Griffith Review and uh, it won the 2017 Nature Writing Prize and Is It Any Wonder? I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.